Well, this morning we have the blessing of having a person with us that's going to be preaching on the book of James. And it's an individual by the name of Tom Meyer. And Tom is a professor at Shasta Bible College. But he's known as the Bible Memory Man. He had worked for a number of years with Word Sower Ministries International. And he is the author of the Memorization Bible. Um, it's a resource that you can that encourages you to, to memorize scripture and walking through the word. And it's just a, it's a great tool to use as you begin to uh, start memorizing scripture and going through scripture. And so I would encourage you to check the Memorization Bible out if you can. But Tom is a, a godly man. He loves the Lord. And we were able to, blessed to be able to, to have him share with us this morning. And so I pray that you would be encouraged this morning as we really hear a message from a different perspective. Tom will recite the entirety of the book of James and preach uh, throughout as he goes throughout and shares God's Word. Uh, You can go online, you can actually see some of the different books that he's memorized, Revelation, uh, parts of Isaiah, uh, 2 Peter, uh, 1 John, and and I would encourage you to to look at that and to, to take some time and to in your own life, maybe take some time this week and just begin small things, small parts of Scripture, and begin to memorize those just day by day, taking a verse and implanting it upon your heart as you, you go through your quiet time. And so I hope this is an encouragement to you this morning. And so let's go ahead and pray for Tom as he, uh, as he is going to share God's Word with us this morning. Lord God, thank you that, that your Word is living and active Father, may we truly hide the truths of your word in our heart, and may we be a a people, your people, who are led and guided by your word. Father, as Tom shares from James, as he shares your words, proclaims your words, Lord, we're reminded of what you tell us in Romans, that God, that, that faith comes from hearing. And so, Father, may we be a people who proclaim your truth. May we be a a family of believers who read your word and value your word and live by the authority of your word. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've granted, and we pray that it would be your spirit who moves upon our hearts this morning as we listen and who respond to you as you bring your word forth in a unique way this morning through Tom. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor. Well, what I'd like to do is the following is, number one, I would like to give a a brief, very brief introduction to the book of James. Then number two, I would like to recite the entire book of James from memory. And then number three, with the time remaining, I would like to work verse by verse through a section in chapter five about Christian conduct in the last days. The book of James was written a long, long time ago in a land far, far away in between two really important events. Well, the most important event in human history thus far, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in about 33 AD, as you know, and then the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. So somewhere in between 33 and 70, they think around 50 AD, the book of James was written. James grew up in the Galilee, as you well know, Galilee was a very, uh, very liberal, very open, very international, very well-trafficked region. 
Sounds familiar, right? Well-trafficked, international, liberal, and open, lots of moving back and forth, lots of traveling, lots of commerce, and, and those kind of things. But when James became a believer in his brother, he uh, moved down to Jerusalem, to that slow-paced, tight-knit, conservative area where the gospel was born. And he became one of the pastors, one of the leaders, elders, teachers, pillars, as it were, of the early church. And the people that James is going to be preaching to today, even though they lived on the other side of the world, and even though they lived 2,000 years ago, they still have a lot in common with us. Sure, they didn't have the privileges of PowerPoint and padded pews and hand sanitizer around every corner and orange mocha frappuccinos and gluten-free cupcakes in the back and those kind of things. But, you know, there was a very hard world to live in in their world. It was hot. It was dusty. It was bloody. Maybe even illegal at this time. Certainly persecuted. But the people in the pew there, you know, they were struggling with a lot of the things that we struggle with today. There was a lot of instability in the world at their time. It felt like the stranglehold of Rome was getting tighter and tighter on the province of Judea. It was like the handwriting was on the wall that the end of the world was near. Everyone was eagerly anticipating for Jesus to return quickly. And we kind of feel the same way, don't we? Instability. People are scared. People feel threatened. People don't know what's happening. People think the end is near. People think Christ is going to return soon. So there's a lot for us to glean and to gain from hearing this book today. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass, he shall soon pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to those that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God! For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. 
Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and overflowing of wickedness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own self. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a natural man, beholding his face in a mirror. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. If any man among you seems to be religious, but bridleth not his tongue, and deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothing and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, hath God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those that love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do not they blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? For if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed of the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe there's one God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with works and by works? Faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. My brethren, not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater judgment. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man enable also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth and we turn about their whole bodies and they obey us. Behold, also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small rudder wherever the captain desires? Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed and have been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless God, even the Father. And with it we curse men, which are made after the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings, my brethren. These things ought not so to be. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? either of vine figs, so can no fountain yield, both salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good lifestyle his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitterness, envy, and strife in your heart, you glory not and lie against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly and sensual and demonic. For where envy and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them which make peace. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure which war in your members? You lust and 
do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures, you adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain the spirit that dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore he says God resists the proud but gives grace unto the humble. Therefore submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Your joy into gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil against one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him, it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers which mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in pleasure, luxury. You have fattened your heart as in a day of slaughter. You've condemned, you've murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. 
You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another, brethren, that you might be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again. The heavens gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who converts the sinner from the error of his ways shall save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Amen. All right, friends. Well, with our time remaining, we want to just work through a couple of verses in chapter 5. Chapter 5, starting in verse number 7. How should we think, how should we practice, knowing, without a shadow of a doubt, biblically speaking, that we're in the last days? Well, actually, we've been in the last days, the last, technically speaking, the last 2,000 years. In 1 John chapter 2, John writes this. He says, little children, that would be the people in the pew, probably at Ephesus. Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. I mean, do you think he sounds kind of certain <laughs> that it's 11.59, the clock's about to hit midnight, and the whole thing is going to go down, the day of the Lord, the great tribulation. It sounds imminent in his thinking and in his practice, doesn't it? So if it was imminent, the coming of Christ and the book of Revelation and all that kind of stuff that goes with it, if it was imminent 2,000 years ago, how much more today? So how should we think? How should we practice as we see the last days in front of our very eyes in many ways? I mean, politically speaking, all the actors, as it were, are on the stage. We have signs of the times. We have the curtain, as it were, almost wiggling, just ready to get pulled up and to let the day of the Lord happen. So as we live and move and have our being, how should we do? How should we practice? How should we live our lives? Well, he gives us an illustration. Do you ever wonder where your 
your fantastic pastors get the idea of illustrations from is from the Bible. James gave a few of them, didn't he? Remember the tongue was like a boat and a rudder? Remember the tongue was like a bit in the horse's mouth? Well, he gives an illustration of how we should think in the last days here. Chapter 5, verse number 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rains? Pause real quick. Just as a farmer, just as a farmer wakes up early every day, just as he busts his hump to go out into that field, to till that land, to sharpen those tools, to sow that seed, just as the farmer does everything that he can possibly do within his own power to receive the blessing of precious fruit, and it's precious because it's his family's livelihood, just as he would do everything he could do within his own power to receive that blessing of the precious fruit, and just as he had to wait for something that was outside of his control, what did he have to wait for that was outside of his control? Namely, rain. That's the illustration, and the application is for us today as well. Your field, my field, are different. They're different sizes. The field of my ministry goes from California pretty much to Kentucky. That's a large swath of land that my family and I drive up and down in sowing seeds, speaking the word, some sow, some water, some plant, you know the illustration. Your field might be a little bit smaller here in Sonoma County. It's a tough field though, and it's some hard land to till, isn't it? But wherever God's placed you, wherever the land he's given you to work, it's our responsibility from that illustration there, isn't it? It's our responsibility to do the best we can with what we've got to work as hard as we can, to leave it all out, as it were, on the court. Remember in, what was it, the 1992 or three or four finals when Scottie Pippen had to carry Michael Jordan off the court and game whatever it was against the Utah Jazz? He just left everything out there. He couldn't leave anymore. He couldn't do anymore. That Pippen had to carry him off. Perfect picture. So whatever that looks like, whatever we need to double down on, whatever we need to reevaluate, whatever we need to focus in on, how can we can maximize our time, whatever time we have left here on earth to make the greatest impact, the greatest mark we can on the world for God's glory. Okay, go on. So what am I supposed to do with my, my heart, the part of you that's most important between you and God? What are you supposed to do with your heart while you're out there working in the proverbial field? Well, he tells us. He says, establish your heart. Well, pause real quick. What does that mean, to establish? Well, that word establish, um, have you ever seen the, uh, the Mount Rushmore? Or you've seen at least the pictures of it, right? Now, do you know how those, those presidents, do you know how they're not blinking? <laughs> do you know how they have this laser focus? They're not switching lanes and they're not fickle and inconstant and unreliable. They are locked in. That's kind of the sense of the word. Resolute, focused. So while you're out there doing your work for God, you're going to have good times and bads. You're going to have droughts. You're going to have famines. You're going to have times of plenty. You know how it is good and bad and happy and sad. No matter what the occasion, no matter what the fixed season is, with this part, you're supposed to keep that fixed, like those presidents in the statue, keep it fixed on Christ. Nothing wavering, fixed. Why? Why is it so important that I do as much as I can for God with whatever time he's given us? And why should I keep my heart locked in on him? Well, he tells us, 
the coming of the Lord is at hand, that is to say. The second coming of Christ is not some event that you can just sit back and relax and think that it's not going to come in your lifetime. It's not to infinity and beyond and way far away and there's no way it's going to happen in my lifetime. We're not guaranteed of that in any way, shape, or form. In fact, we're not even guaranteed of tomorrow as we just heard from the book of James. So that's what we're supposed to do outside, as it were. How about inside, as it were, the four walls of the church. How are we supposed to relate to one another and behave with one another? Well, he says, do not grumble, brethren. What does grumble mean? Well, it has this idea of a bitter resentment, a bitter resentment against your fellow Christian, this kind of hatred for another believer that kind of can swell up in your words and in your works towards them. God takes that very seriously, as we heard twice in this book. He warns Christians about backbiting, about backstabbing, about nipping at each other's heels. We should come here to love one another, to be comfortable with one another, to grow with one another. So don't, whatever he's saying, don't go at it with fellow believers. Do not grumble against one another, brethren. Why? Why shouldn't I hold some kind of angst? Why shouldn't I hold this kind of bitterness against a fellow believer? Well, he says, lest you be condemned. Now, I'm not exactly sure what all that means, but I know it's not good. <laughs> so out in the field, we know what we're supposed to do. Inside the four walls, like the saying in our home, everybody love everybody. <laughs> do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Why? Because the judge is standing at the door. He's literally, as it were, on the other side of the door. So not only can he hear what you're saying against one another, he can imminently walk through that door and boom, return. Let's go a little bit more. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Let's pause real quick. Look, friends, like I mentioned at the get-go, we have the privilege of living in the greatest country in the history of the world. Padded pews, PowerPoints, hand sanitizer, orange mocha frappuccinos in the back, gluten-free cupcakes, live stream service right to your living room. It's fantastic. So it's hard for us sometimes, isn't it, to relate to the suffering and to the opposition and to the persecution that these early Christians, and even Christians today, as you well know, in the four corners of the earth, suffer. It's hard. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, and we all go through different levels of it. We do. Might be smaller levels here in America, but we still do suffer. And we, can, and we suffer because we're working hard in the field. We suffer because we're trying to make the greatest mark we can in the world for God's glory. We suffer because we're loving one another. These kind of things. But this too can be overcome. The opposition can be, how, does it, how is it overcome? Through going back to the word. Consider the prophets. Look at the accounts in the text that give us some inspiration and some hope and some perseverance. And then finally, he gives us the classic example of that as we wrap it up here. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord was very compassionate and merciful. So like I said, we'll end with this classic, illustrious example of Job. Job was doing the best he could with what he got in his proverbial field, living as a godly man who skewed evil and feared God. And we all know how the account goes. But... The conclusion of the matter is, is despite the suffering, despite the opposition, despite the hardships that Job had to deal with on so many levels during that tough time, remember what he didn't do. 
He didn't do what his wife recommended that he do. That's to forsake God and die. He didn't give up on God. He stayed with God when the going got tough. And that's what we're doing here. We're suffering together. There's, this is difficult. No one's gone through this before. Your pastor hasn't gone through this before. You haven't gone through this before. And we're in this together. We're suffering together. And we're going to make it through together because this too shall pass. There's a time and a season for everything. And there's a set end to what we're all going through right now. But in the meantime, we're going to use this opportunity that we're all living in to glorify God, to stay true to him, to make the greatest mark we can right now in this unique opportunity, very unique opportunity to make Christ known. Because there's a lot of people out there, as you well know, that are searching. Believe me, Bibles are flying off the shelf at places. It's true. People want answers, and you know that. But remember the end of the story of Job, what happened? Because Job stayed true, because he was out there doing what he was doing, staying faithful in the field, he had to wait for something, right? Like the farmer has to wait for the rain. He had to wait for, quote, unquote, God to return back into his life, as it were. But when God returned, remember what happened? Because Job was faithful with little. Well, actually, it was a lot. <laughs> because Job was faithful, God blessed him twice as much, the Bible says in Job 42. God blessed him twice as much in the second half of his life than in the first half of his life. We can do this, guys. We're going to get through this together. We're going to come out even greater and better than ever before. May God bless you. May God keep you. And I hope that the book of James and the teaching that went along with it was an inspiration to you. God bless. Thank you very much.